Amen. Hey, kids, ages uh, three through first grade, uh, if your parents are okay with it, you can head back to children's worship. Uh, Cindy is going to be back there. And the rest of us, if you turn in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, in a moment we'll read verses 15 through 28. But I want to begin by praying. Our Father in heaven, we come to you needy, but with confidence, because you delight in meeting our needs. And so we pray that you will give to us what we need this morning through the preaching of your word. Where we need conviction, O God, we pray that you will gently remind us of the change that needs to take place. Where we need strength, we pray that your spirit will fall upon us in power. Where we need comfort, O God, hold us gently in your hand. Whatever we need, will you provide it? For our children, O God, in children's worship, will you mightily move in their hearts, remembering your promise to be our God and the God of our descendants after us? And will you bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Father, will you bless us in this way, in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if it was quite with terror in her voice, but there was some concern as uh, Laura was looking at uh, the slides and noting that uh, my sermon starts out with song lyrics. And she says, are you going to sing that? (laughs) No, no I'm not. But I do want to read these lyrics and I want us to meditate on them. I want you to note the theme that runs through all of these different songs. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am. You can't hardly keep from singing, can you? Redeemed. Redeemed redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, and forever I am. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on His hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, His precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds He bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive Him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive Him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. What can wash away my sins? What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. For my cleansing, this I see. For my pardon, this is my plea. Nothing can for sin atone, not of good that I have done. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. 
Now by this I'll overcome. Now by this I'll reach my home. Amen. And there is a fountain filled with blood that's drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Some may be thinking, okay, Pastor, you can sit down now, right? (laughs) Enough said? Yeah. You notice how the blood of Jesus Christ is a central theme in Christianity. It is not something that's just on the back burner. It's not just something that that is an occasional idea that, that comes across our mind. It is central to what we believe, the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see as we read from our passage this morning from Hebrews chapter 9, beginning of verse 15. For this reason He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and the goats with the water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time for salvation without Reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. I believe that this passage gives us three propositions that we are to trust when it comes to the idea of trusting in Jesus' blood. I want us to consider each of these propositions and how we might exercise faith in them. And the first is that he fulfills the law's demands. Augustus' top lady wrote, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. That recognition in in Rock of Ages that, that I can't do it. I need Jesus to cover that for me. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism 
uh, question number 12 asks us a question. I think it, it helps us to begin to understand a little bit of, of uh, how important it is that Christ fulfills uh, the law's demands by showing to us what is required of us. The question is asked, what special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? And the answer is, when God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. And I want us to just understand that from the very beginning, at the moment that God entered into a, a covenant relationship with man, it was a covenant that, was, that, was, that had life and death as a part of it, and these consequences that were essential to what he was commanding. As a matter of fact, when he, when he enters into a covenant with Abraham, um, in Genesis chapter 17, he says to Abraham in the first verse, he says, now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. He doesn't just say walk before me, but in this covenant relationship, he lays upon him the responsibility. You're to walk before me and you're supposed to be blameless. Well, such as there, we see it also in Exodus chapter 19 with the uh, covenant that God makes with Moses, where Moses says to the people on God's behalf, he says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. You see, see that, that the, the, the commandment with Abraham, which we think of as this, this gracious covenant, and it was, but he tells him you need to walk before me and be blameless. He then turns over to Moses and he says to Moses uh, that you're to tell the people that if you obey my covenant, then you will be my people. And then Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount in the very beginning of it, he begins to turn our attention to the law and its, its role in our life. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I hope that you're beginning to see the point. And the point is, he's got to fulfill the law's demands, right? I can't walk before him and be blameless. I fail. I don't keep all of his covenant. I see that I don't obey his commands. What is my hope? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I turn my hope not upon my ability to fulfill the law's demands, but upon Jesus' ability to fulfill the law's demands that He, by His life, through His blood, has accomplished that for me. For the covenant has consequences. The idea has come up in my mind through various circumstances in this past week. The, the idea that a policy, okay, and, and some organizations love to, to um, lead the organization by policies, right? 
You always got to have your policy, and uh, I'm talking at several different levels about new policies that we need at Presbytery. We need on the session level uh, policies to help protect our children, and and uh, and we do. And the the uh, report on uh, domestic abuse and sexual assault that our denomination came out, and they recommended that that each uh, church and each presbytery needs to form these policies, and and policies unless they're enforced are worthless, right? It accomplishes nothing to have a policy if you are not going to actually enforce it. And I think that's a part of what we, what we see in this passage as, as we look at it and we try to understand it. Because the reality is a covenant without enforcement is not a covenant either. And that's his point when he's saying about the, the importance of, of there being a death of the one making the covenant. And we say is it isn't that, okay, I make a covenant, now I need to die. No, it's when I make the covenant, if when I break it, there are no consequences upon me, the covenant is invalid, right? The only way it's valid is if there is actually the death of the one who violates that, that covenant. Unless there is some punishment, unless there is some consequence, the covenant is completely invalid. And so he's trying to get that across to us. O. Palmer Robertson who wrote The Christ and the Covenants, gives a definition of a covenant. And his definition is that a divine covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And by saying it's a bond, he's saying, first of all, it's, it's a relationship that, that binds two groups together. It's a bond in blood, meaning there are life and death consequences. And it's sovereignly administered, meaning it's not something that's negotiated between the creature and, the, and God. But God simply dictates from the top down, and he says, this is what the relationship is. These are the terms that are there. He says that there are consequences tied in with this covenant relationship. So we begin to look at our passage, and we look at places like verse 16, 17. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. And the idea with that is that there, and that's why it, uh, the, the idea is what I've already said, that we have to um, have consequences to the covenant or it's invalid. And that's why when you see the making of a covenant, you see the killing of an animal ceremonially. That was a, a ceremony of saying, this is what the, the price will be. So when Abraham has that covenant with God and he, he cuts the animals in pieces, and then God passes between the pieces saying, and it's going to rest on my obedience to it, not yours. And so that's what the, the, the sacrifice is all about when it comes to the covenants, to show that there are consequences, that there is an enforcement that's necessary. And our hope is, that he paid the price. Look at verse 15. For this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. The redemption of the transgressions is a reminder to us that there was a price that had to be paid for each disobedience. Think about the role of, 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 of blood when it comes to our covenant relationship with God. We read in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. But the wages of sin, that is to say, the just recompense for sin is death. To begin to understand that, and, and the significance of that. I remember uh, a, a young man in seminary, as we were talking about the cross of Christ, 
And he says, isn't that a little bit of an overreaction on God's part? The, the professor was, I think aghast would be an understatement. And the, the, the question was turned back and he said, isn't it maybe that you have an underestimation of the wickedness of sin? Maybe you don't understand how bad it is to live out of conformity with the God who is good and is life. That you have set yourself against all that is good in that choice. And there's a price that must be paid. And in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, we, we learn about that, that price and, and, and why blood. He says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And so you see what he's saying is the blood was there and the blood was sprinkled on things to remind them that a death had to happen. And each drop of that blood is a picture pointing to Jesus Christ who would be the last of the sacrifices because His would be the one that matters. If the wages of sin is death, there are two options for our salvation. Either God is unjust and simply overlooks, or God is just, and He sends His Son to pay the specific price due for each of our sins. You see, each of our debts is too great. Your debt is beyond what you are able You've heard the phrase to, to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? Have you ever thought about that? And what that's really saying? I mean, the idea that I can't pick myself up off the ground, right? I, I'm, I'm unable to do that. I have to have something to stand upon in order to lift a weight. I have to have that. And that's the idea. I can't, I can't lift myself up by my own bootstraps. Sinful man can never atone for sinful man. Because I myself am an unworthy sacrifice. And that's why Jesus had to come to pay the price. You can trust Jesus' blood because it is not the labor of your hands, but it's His blood that fulfilled the law's demands. You can also trust His blood because he consecrates God's people. We see this in verses 19 through 24. And we will uh, look at that as, as we move forward. Um, I want to read a little bit more from uh, the uh, Book of Church Order. Um, I'm actually going to use my uh, printed out part of that. Um, one of the things that the Book of Church Order does, it gives us a lot of different forms. Uh, in the Book of Church Order, there are suggested uh, uh, wedding ceremonies. There are suggestions for uh, funerals, suggestions for uh, graveside. But there's also uh, a, a suggestion. Here's a service to dedicate a building. Was anybody here here when this building was dedicated? Okay, there are a few. There's actually quite a few. That's really kind of cool. It was a neat moment, right? was really cool. I love that there's the, the, the plaque out front uh, that, that tells us the date in which that happened. And it's a reminder of this, this significant moment. Think about it in the life of this church. That this church had been meeting, I believe, just uh, down the road at the Seventh-day Adventist uh, building, right? 
And we had our, our first pastor, and he led the congregation to go ahead and purchase land. And, and it's about time to begin to build a building. And think of what that meant for the congregation. We have a permanent place. We have a place to store our stuff. Right? Not a bad thing. we got a place we can put our chairs. And this church loves chairs. we got lots and lots of chairs. And we wanted a place to store them. And we store them. We do... And we sit in them too, but nonetheless, so we, we, got this, we got this great place. And then we get to come together in this place that is our place that God has provided for us, and we get to worship Him together. It's a wonderful thing. And so we want to set apart this building, because in coming in here, we realize there's something different. Now, some of you may have done this even when you bought your first home. Did you dedicate it? Yeah. Yeah, to take that moment and say, this is really something special. And I want to be aware of that. I want to set it apart to God. Well, what, what we're suggested in the Book of Church Order when you're dedicating a building, then the minister shall say, Beloved in the Lord, seeing that it has pleased Almighty God to prosper us in our undertaking to build a house for His worship, let us now invoke upon it His abiding blessing. To the end that pure apostolic doctrine and order may be maintained herein, and that the Holy Spirit may make His own ordinances effectual. In so doing, let us reverently set this house apart for these sacred uses with prayer and supplication. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful way of seeing precisely what you're doing in set aside the building? Is that you are consecrating it to God. There's a very real sense in which we did that this morning with Chris, right? Taking something that's very common, or maybe not so, but taking Chris and saying, this is a man who's a part of our church, he's an elder, but now we're setting him apart to serve this church on the session. And with each of the members of our session, of our diaconate, we've set them apart in that way to be consecrated to God. Each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there's a reason we pray for the bread and we pray for the cup. Because the bread and the cup are common things and we're setting them apart for a holy use. We're consecrating them. In the Old Testament, consecration involved blood. It's one of the ways that they set things apart. And we see this as we, as we look at this passage and we, we see these areas in which the, the blood is sprinkled. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and the scarlet wool and hyssop and he sprinkled both the book, the book of the covenant itself, and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And so we see that in the Old Testament, they would, they would set apart all of these elements for worship with the sprinkling of blood. Keep that in mind as we remember Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 and verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Notice, he's going to sprinkle clean water on us. Because we don't have to renew the blood. The blood has been shed, 
And now in the New Covenant, He sprinkles water. This is why our idea as Presbyterians of baptism involves the sprinkling of the water. Not the immersion, but the sprinkling. Because that is the sign that was used throughout God's covenant dealings with His people for cleansing and consecration. It wasn't by, by, by taking the vessels and, and dipping them into the blood, but it was the sprinkling of the blood that was there for the cleansing and for the setting them apart. And this is why, as we think of the cleansing and the setting apart of our children, that we sprinkle clean water on them in, in thoughts of the clean water that the Spirit will clean, uh, sprinkle upon us. You see, we are set apart to God. Notice what he sprinkled was the people. The people was one of the things. Anybody else get a little bit creeped out and thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm in the new covenant, right? I'm going to show up to church and go home with drips of blood on me. Oh, yay. Not, not exactly super appealing, but that was the Old Testament. That was being focused, and, and so that recognition. But he would sprinkle the people. And, and we read about that in, in Exodus chapter 24, and we can see specifically what was going on with that. Starting in verse uh, 5, he said, He sent young men to the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so he'd sprinkle the people. But Jesus entered into heaven, didn't he? Jesus did his cleansing not in the shadow, but in the real tabernacle of God. Not with the images but with the real vessels of the worship of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21 tells us something about those vessels. Ephesians 2, verse 21, in whom, that is in Jesus, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Do you see, you are the tabernacle of God. You are the dwelling place of God. You, the people, are that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, we read that, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of of the living God, just as it is said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You are the temple of God. You are the dwelling place of God. You are the vessels of worship. And He has sprinkled and cleansed you. He has set you apart unto God to serve a holy God. Vessels set apart for a holy use. You are marked out for God. You belong to Him. And forgive me, just take a moment. I really want you to think about that because this, this last week I've, I've, I've talked to a, a number of people and I've, I've seen a common theme in some of the struggles that people are facing. And I just want to remind you, you belong to God. He has marked you out for Himself. I'm sorry, you do not belong to this world. 
This world has no claim on you. You do not belong to the devil. The devil has no claim on you. You belong to God Almighty. He has His mark on you. He will not let you go. And you can lift your head up knowing, I have been set apart unto Jesus Christ. I am His. And stand firm in that, beloved. Because that's the reality of who you are. You have been consecrated to God. And you've been set apart by name. Look at verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. But don't miss those last two words. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. He's not just there. And He's not there for all y'all. But for each and every one of you. He is appearing before God the Father. He is appealing for you as an individual. By name, you have been set apart. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, um, this is a. Uh, I'll, I'll tell Larry, you can take notes on this if you want, Larry, because you'll eventually get there. Um, we have this, the, the picture of the, the great white throne, the, the judgment at the end of the age. And I want you to notice what is said um, in this passage because it's very instructive to us. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Notice that. Every single person, Christian, non-Christian alike, stands before God and we are judged by our deeds. The deeds that we have done will be judged at that moment. Verse 13, he says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the book of fire. Because what do those, our deeds show? Our deeds show that we have failed. We will be judged by them, and we will one day stand before God, and the wrongness of our actions will be known. But there's a difference. He will open the book of life and Jesus with His nail-pierced hands will show the Father where our name is written and will say, theirs is paid in full, Father. For I have overcome and I've broken the seals so that this book is opened. And it's by that book that we're saved. Your name is written there. Your name. You have been set apart by name. You can trust Jesus' blood, that blood that sets you apart unto God by name. And you can trust His blood that takes away your sin. Verses 25 through 28. Notice verse 28, if you would. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for Him. 
Verse 28, to, to, to put away sin. Oh, I think I'm wanting to be up in uh, an earlier verse. But that, that idea that he, he, he takes away our sin, meaning he sets it aside, he considers it invalid. Yes, it's in verse 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he's been manifested to put away sin. And that word means to set it aside, to, to consider it as invalid. This doesn't play a role anymore. That's what he came to do, is to take our sin and to set it over here and say, this doesn't matter in this person's life anymore. Why? Because he has paid that price. And so therefore it has no bearing upon us anymore. It isn't a part of who we are. It's been separated from us. And therefore it is invalid as far as reference to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 we read a little bit more about this. And, and we see what Jesus has done for us. Um, verse 18, I'll start with. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That idea that he doesn't count our trespasses against us. No, they've been set aside. They're considered as invalid. They don't have a, a role in our life. They are separate from us. No longer do they define us. No longer do they hold us down because they've been taken away. They've been taken away by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is where we read in verse 21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that he has made this transfer to remove our sins from us by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's been taken away from us. He sacrificed himself. Consider the price. One sin deserves death, that is to say, separation from the God of life. One sin deserves an eternal separation from God. And yet, how many times do we sin? Evangelism explosion, to make the math easier, says, well, what if we only sin three times a day? That's a thousand sins a year, and we get some Sundays off. Right? Because, I mean, seriously, who sins on Sundays? A thousand sins a year, you live 70 years, that's 70,000 sins, that's 70,000 eternities of separation from God for each one of us of the billions of names written in that book of life. That's the price that Jesus paid upon that cross. He didn't suffer in general. He suffered for the specific sins that we had committed. If it's just in general, God isn't just. A person isn't charged with the general crime of being bad, right? It's each individual act is brought against them. That's the price for our sin that Jesus paid. And he bore the sins. Here we look at verse 28. And it says that he, he would bear the sins. And that is that he would lift them up. That our sins were laid before him and we would try to lift but we could not. And he himself lifted it and bore it on our behalf that it might be separated from us as far as east is from the west. He carried it to the depths of the sea and dropped it into the ocean. He put it behind 
the father's back so that he would remember it no more. He was able to bear our sin. That's what his blood did. And therefore, he'll receive you as saints. Look again at verse 28. He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. He's going to come back and it has no reference to sin. Because it's been taken away, but instead he's given you the righteousness of God. And so that he calls you not sinners, but he calls you saints. And he will receive you as saints, as the holy ones, as those that he has set apart for himself, as those who've been covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Friends, walk in that righteousness. It's yours. He's given it to you that you might wear it. Wear it well. And trust Jesus' blood that takes away your sins. For just a moment, imagine being a Jewish believer in the first century. And you've grown up with all these sacrifices. And you've grown up knowing the importance of blood. You've grown up going to the temple and being sprinkled with that blood. You remember the smells. You remember the feeling. You remember the sights. You remember it. And it's so easy to trust that blood. And how can I walk away from that? That was so powerful in my life. How can I not have that continue in my life? And the author of Hebrews writes to these Jewish believers and says you can trust the blood of Jesus. That's what you need to trust. That's the blood that provides salvation. That's the blood that was pictured by the blood of animals. It's the blood of Jesus. To trust Jesus' blood, my friends, is to trust that He fulfills the law's demands on your behalf, to trust that He consecrates His people, and to trust that He takes away sin. I guess I would be in error if I didn't ask you personally, do you trust that blood? Put your trust in it today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank You. Thank you for sending your son to die for our sin. Thank you for sending your son whose blood was shed so that ours need not be. Thank you for giving us salvation. Lord, I just pray for us as a congregation that you will help us to trust that and help us with joy to take that message to our neighbors and to tell them they need not fear that there is salvation in that blood. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.